This morning we want to continue our series of studies on the qualifications of an elder, uh, the qualities that should be looked for in an elder of the Lord's church. And as I've said before, I've learned a great deal during this study, and I hope that something that I have to share this morning will be beneficial to us all. At the risk of being repetitious, once again, I want to remind us of something that we've tried to stress throughout the series, and that is that while these qualities are listed as characteristics that must be expected of an elder, most of these qualities are also characteristics that should be expected of all Christians. In other words, these behaviors and these attitudes, for the most part, are the standard or should be the standard for us all. An elder should be an example to others in how to live these qualities out in our everyday lives, but he's not the only one who must live up to these values. And that's certainly the case with the qualifications that we plan to study this morning. Those are the requirements that an elder must be a lover of good, upright, and holy. Certainly no one would, hopefully, or should say, well, I don't have to, be, I don't have to love what's good, or I don't have to be upright, or I don't have to be holy because I'm not an elder. That, of course, would be silly, and it would be contradictory to, to other scriptures. These are things that we should all be striving for and growing in as we live the Christian life. And so let's begin our study by reading the passage in which we find these qualities. In Titus, the first chapter, we'll read verses 5 through 9. Titus 1, beginning with verse 5, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, you'll notice that I did not read the passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we've become accustomed to referencing uh, in our studies the last several weeks. And that's because, as, as it turns out, these three qualities uh, under consideration today are only listed in Paul's instructions to Titus. They are not specifically named in his letter to Timothy. Of course, as we pointed out before, Paul didn't list these qualities in the same order in his two letters, uh, nor are the qualifications identical. Uh, again, different translations and versions make it somewhat difficult to, to line up the qualities between the two lists. And I suppose it could be argued that the qualities of lover of good, and upright, and holy maybe are closely related to other qualities that Paul did mention to Timothy, maybe included within some of those qualities. Things such as above reproach or respectable or well thought of by outsiders could be tied to these that we'll notice today. But, but we'll focus our attention on Titus 1 as we take a closer look at these three qualifications. Well, first of all, Paul says that an elder must be a lover of good. The Greek word that's used here Philagathos uh, is found only in Titus 1 and verse 8. It's nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a compound word that's made up of the words philos, which means uh, fond of or a friend of or um, a lover of, and then agathos, which simply means good or that which is good. The word agathos, though, is, is 
pretty generic, if you will. It can be applied to, to many different areas of our life. Good things, good people, good deeds. And perhaps that's why there's a, a bit of uncertainty as to what exactly Paul was referring to when he said an elder must be philagathos, that he must be a lover of good. Strong's uh, lexicon adds the note that this refers to a promoter of virtue, and so someone who promotes uh, good, if you will. Thayer's lexicon has one who is uh, loving goodness, and Vine's Bible dictionary has loving that which is good. And obviously, you can tell that doesn't narrow it down uh, much at all. Vines does add, though, or note that the opposite of this quality, even though this is the only time that this word is found in the New Testament, the opposite of this quality um, is found in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 3. Paul there uh, is speaking of the godlessness in the last days. And he says, and I'll go ahead and, and read verses 1 through 5 for, for a little bit of context. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And so as I said, we can see um, the opposite of what loving good must look like. In fact, you can see there are several things that that these types of people love instead of good. They love themselves, they love money, uh, they love pleasure, and so forth. Um, but this is the kind of company that those who are not lovers of good keep. And so again, we can clearly see that this qualification here for elders is something that certainly we all need to um, try to attain because we don't want to be put into to this category uh, that Paul describes here in 2 Timothy 3. Most translations uh, have kept the the same rather generic take on the Greek word uh, philagathos that we've already noted. There are a few slight variations. The New King James Version says a lover of what is good. Uh, the New American Standard says loving what is good. The New Revised Standard, a lover of goodness. And the NIV, one who loves what is good. Again, those are all pretty much the same. And even the Amplified Version, which usually likes to add some flowery speech or some maybe extra thoughts to it, even the Amplified refrains from going out on a limb here. Um, it doesn't insert many more details about this quality, although the Amplified Classic Edition, not sure what that is, I don't think I've ever seen that one, but it does add a lover of goodness, and then in parentheses it says of good people and good things. So a couple of details there. Oddly, actually, it's only the King James Version that is a bit more specific when it comes to this qualification. The King James Version translates this quality as a lover of of good men. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. I suppose, though, that at this point, someone might throw up their hands and say, lover of good, that, that's just too broad. It's not specific enough. How are we supposed to judge a prospective elder on this qualification? How are we supposed to judge ourselves uh, on this quality if we don't even know what it means? But, you know, I think perhaps that was Paul's intention. I think perhaps if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what did you mean by lover of good? Did you mean good men, as the King James Version uh, puts it? Or did you mean good things? Or did you mean good deeds? And I think Paul's answer might be yes. Yes to all of those. Not that he was trying to be confusing, but I think it makes the point that this word good 
does indeed cover a lot of territory. And so let's look at, at some of these uh, specifics here. For example, an elder must be, as the King James Version puts it, a lover of good men, good people. It's hard to imagine an elder of the church not loving and wanting to be around good people. After all, the best good people that I can think of are members of the church, his Christian family, God's people. And if an elder doesn't love his brothers and sisters, then he's not going to be a very effective leader, obviously. The 18th century uh, theologian and Bible scholar John Gill uh, wrote these words. He said, A lover of good men, for such an elder or bishop has chiefly to do and converse with. And if he is not a lover of them, their company will be disagreeable to him, and he will be of no advantage to them. And if he does not love the souls of men, he will not naturally care for their state or be concerned for their good. Notice a couple of points that, that Mr. Gill uh, makes here. First of all, he says that good men, and again, I'm focusing uh, specifically on members of the church here, both men and women, good men should be the ones that an elder has to do, as Mr. Gill says. That is, the one that he spends his time with mostly, the ones that he converses or talks with. How strange it would be if a man is said to be an overseer or an under-shepherd, um, as elders are sometimes called, yet he's never around them. What kind of shepherd is never around the sheep? If a man's friends and his closest acquaintances are not Christians, then I would say that raises immediate questions. In fact, that might be true of all of us. If our closest acquaintances and our best friends or our, our, most of our friends are not Christians, are we living up to, to what God expects of us? Yes, it's important to enjoy their company, but, but that's not what's most important. Mr. Gill goes on to say he must also love their souls. That's what's most important. In fact, that should be his main concern and focus, and it should be on their spiritual state. After all, that's true agape love, isn't it? Every member may not be best friends with an elder. He may not be the first person that you make weekend plans with or go out to dinner with, but he should be one that you would trust the oversight of your soul with, that you trust the oversight of the church to. And certainly elders should trust or the members should trust that an elder is always or always has their best spiritual interest in mind. An elder, though, also must be a lover of good things. Things such as worship, prayer, preaching, reading of God's Word and, and uh, other literature that, that teaches more about God's Word, meditation, Bible conversations. You know, in the denominational world today, the, the office of an elder has sadly become not much more than just a, a board of directors. A group of men and, and sometimes women, and by the way, that may be another qualification that, that we need to study, that an elder must be a man. I think that's obvious to, to all of us. I hope it is. But apparently it's not obvious to the world. As I was saying though, the religious world often sees elders as a, a group of people in charge of the finances and the everyday business of the church. But those have little to do with things that actually matter most. And these men and women may be reputable business owners in the community or they may be uh, political officials they may be local judges, but whether they are actually knowledgeable or even interested in good things, as I described, well, that's optional. 
As I said, that's the way the world views the eldership. That certainly is not God's view, and I hope it's not our view. When it comes to good things, I'm reminded of the passage in, in Philippians 4 and verse 8, where Paul urges the church, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I think that's the types of good things that Paul says that an elder must be a lover of. Paul was speaking there, by the way, in Philippians to all Christians. But again, certainly an elder must be an example of one who puts good things first. Not his career, not his investments, not his hobbies, but good things, the most important things. And along those same lines, an elder must also certainly be a lover of good deeds or good works. In fact, I tend to lean towards thinking that that's the kind of good that, that maybe Paul had in mind. As I said, maybe he did mean it generically so that it could cover all types of good. But, but perhaps um, good works was, was what he had in mind here when he said a lover of good, uh, of good. The reason I say that is because in context here in Titus, good works seems to be uh, an overall theme of his entire letter to Titus. In chapter 1, uh, as soon as he finishes listing the qualifications of elders... Paul takes aim at those in Crete, that's where Paul uh, had left Titus. He takes aim at those who were insubordinate, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus 1 verses 10 through 16. In contrast, in chapter 2 of Titus, Paul instructs Titus to teach sound doctrine to the older men and older women and younger women and younger men. And he tells Titus to practice what he preaches. In verse 7 he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In verse 14, he says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Continuing chapter 3, Paul continues his instructions on what Titus is to teach uh, Christians there in Crete. And he includes in verse 1, remember them or remind them rather to be ready for every good work. Twice more in verse 8 and verse 14, Paul stresses this theme. He says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, verse 8. And again in verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Obviously, Paul had in mind when he was writing to Titus uh, how important it is for Christians to participate in good deeds or good works. And so I, I tend to think, as I said, that, that maybe that's, he led into that thought by saying that an elder must be one who loves good works or good deeds. Another interesting piece of evidence maybe that suggests that this Greek word philagathos may refer primarily to good works is, is a historical uh, piece of evidence, actually. Historians and, and scientists who study ancient engravings tell us that this Greek word philagathos, even though it's only found once in the New Testament, that it was used quite often in inscriptions. Uh, and they were inscriptions that were praising admirable people for the good works that they had done. So maybe that is how that Greek word was most used uh, during Paul's lifetime. Well, finally, I think that it's worth noting that this qualification of lover of good, it immediately follows the requirement that an elder must be hospitable. We've studied that one before, and you remember it's literally translated a lover of strangers. 
Hospitality is, is certainly a good work that all Christians must perform and that elders must be an example of. And so it seems almost as if Paul says, elders must love to be good to strangers. In fact, elders should love everything that's good. In Galatians 6 and verse 10, Paul would write, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And again, elders are to be an example to the flock, according to 1 Peter 5 and verse 3. They are to model the attitudes and the actions that the Lord requires of His people. Jesus taught in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, that was meant to, to the disciples, to all Christians, but I think especially to elders. And as always, Jesus left us the perfect example of how to do that. In Acts 10 verse 38, it tells us that Jesus went about doing good. And so likewise, His followers, and especially the overseers of His church, must be lovers of good. Well, moving on this morning, the next qualification that uh, we want to consider, the next quality of elders uh, that we want to notice, is that an elder must be upright or righteous or just, as many translations have it for Titus 1 and verse 8. In fact, almost all versions have one of these three, three translations, either upright or righteous, which is almost the same, or just. Um, I only found one, really, uh, the Common English Bible. not very familiar with that translation, but it has the word ethical, which may include the idea here, but I think that's maybe a little bit too, uh, too far off. The Greek word that, that Paul uses here is uh, dikaios, and unlike uh, previous qualifications that we've studied, this word is used many times throughout the New Testament. In fact, at least 81 times, according to Strong's, you can find this Greek word. However, uh, similar to the word good that we've already noticed, the word that is translated here as upright or just, this Greek word, it can take on a, a broad range of meaning. Strong's defines it as equitable in character or act, by implication, innocent, holy, absolutely or relatively, just, meet, right, or righteous. Thayer defines this word as righteous, observing divine and human laws, one who is such as he ought to be. And I think that's actually a pretty good way for us to think of it, about it. A man who is what he ought to be. That's a man who is upright or, or just or righteous. Thayer, though, goes on to emphasize, I think, the, the ambiguity of this word, the, the, how it can cover a broad range of meanings. He says that it means, in a wide sense, upright, righteous, virtuous, keeping the commands of God. In a narrower sense, rendering to each his due. And that, in a judicial sense, passing just judgment on others, whether expressed in words or shown by the manner of dealing with them. So again, I can almost imagine someone asking Paul, Hey, hey Paul, Exactly what did you mean here by upright? Did you mean that an elder must be righteous? Did you mean that he must keep God's commandments? Or did you mean that he must judge fairly? And again, Paul would most likely say, yes. All of those can be included in this uh, quality or qualification. But let's see if we can break that down uh, somewhat. Um, in a general sense, again, this Greek word dikaios means to be righteous or virtuous. And to the extreme, this would be one who is innocent, 
faultless, guiltless. Well, obviously that describes none of us. It describes no one other than God Himself as well as His Son. No man other than Jesus uh, has ever been guiltless, faultless, uh, or perfect. Paul admits that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3 and 23. In fact, in Romans 3 and verse 10, Paul states, none is righteous. No, not one. Is that a contradiction? Well, again, I think we have to uh, kind of read between the lines and see how this word might apply here. Um, As imperfect as we may be, the Bible teaches that we can be viewed as righteous or as just in God's eyes. God in His grace and His mercy and His love had a plan to redeem humanity and to gather to Himself a, a people. And once again, we can be declared righteous by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because of God's work to redeem the lost, all the world falls into one of two categories, the just or the unjust. We can read that in passages such as Matthew 5:45, also Acts 24:15. So the determining factor is, is how one responds to God's Word, how we accept His offer of grace and mercy and love. However, that's most likely not all that Paul means by this qualification that elders must be upright. Yes, they must be uh, righteous or just in God's eyes. In other words, they must be um, baptized believers. They must be saved. But surely there's more to it than, than just that. I think that's really too obvious that Paul just says, well, an elder must be a member of the church. And that brings us to the next layer, if you will, of this word uh, dikaios. It can also apply to someone who conforms to the will of God or keeps the commands of God. Once again, though, only Jesus has done that perfectly. But I think we're getting closer to, to Paul's application to elders, perhaps. While no other man has ever, nor ever will, follow God's law perfectly, an elder certainly must be one who strives in his everyday life to do so. He will fail from time to time. He will not obey God's law, just as we will all fail from time to time. But that's his goal. It's not enough to to be a hearer of God's Word. We must be a doer of the Word in order to be justified, according to many passages, such as Romans 2.13. Paul there says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Of course, in James 1, verses 22 through 25, uh, we're all probably very familiar with that a passage where James says that a person who is a hearer only and not a doer of the Word is, is like a man who looks at himself in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what he saw, forgets what he was like. We have several examples uh, in the Bible of men and women who are said to be just or, or righteous. This adjective is used of people such as Joseph, the husband of Mary, in Matthew 1.19. It's used of Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist, Luke 1, verse 6. It's used of Joseph of Arimathea, uh, the man in whose tomb the body of Jesus was buried, Luke 23, 50. It's used of Cornelius, the centurion, in Acts 10 and verse 32, just to name a few. And of course, as always, Jesus is held up as the perfect example. In fact, John, or rather 1 John 2 and verse 1 refers to Him as Jesus Christ, the righteous. I think John actually sums this uh, up best uh, in 1 John 3 and verse 7 
where he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, that is Christ, is righteous. And so in order to be righteous as Christ, then we must practice righteousness. But yet there's still another layer to this, maybe a more specific application of this Greek word. Thayer says that in a narrower sense, the word upright or just can refer to the way a man passes judgment on others. Vines uh, Dictionary notes that, that this Greek word can refer to judgment without prejudice or partiality. An elder of the church holds a position of authority and leadership that requires him to sometimes make what we refer to as judgment calls. And of course, those decisions must always be based on God's Word, but, but they must also be unbiased and fair. Again, I'll quote John Gill, who said, An elder must be righteous in his dealings with men, giving to everyone their due, upright and sincere in his conversation with the saints, and faithful in his counsel, admonitions, and reproofs. David Lipscomb, in, in describing this quality of, of upright or just, said that it describes one who tries strictly to perform his duties toward men, the duties which integrity and justice seem imperatively to ask of him in his relation with his neighbor. Well, thirdly and, and finally this morning, let's move on to the last qualification or quality of elders that, that we want to consider from Titus 1 and verse 8, and that is that an elder is said to be or must be holy. Now, I have to admit, admit to you, of all the qualifications that are outlined by Paul in both 1 Timothy 3 and also here in Titus 1, I think this one probably gives me the most pause. In other words, if I were to judge myself on these qualities, whether as a prospective elder or as a Christian in general, because again, these characteristics are expected of all of us, but this is probably the one that I would be most hesitant to, to check off the box, so to speak. Holy? Am I holy? Are any of us holy? And so let's take a, a closer look. The Greek word that's used here uh, is hosios. And when I looked that up in Strong's lexicon, I immediately noticed that its etymology, in other words, its uh, root word, its origin, um, the historical development of, of where the word came from or what it means, Strong says that it's of a uncertain affinity. And simply put, that means that it's unknown how this word uh, came about. It's unknown if there are any similar or related words to it. Um, Strong couldn't connect the word with certainty to some other more original word or to a lower level root word. It didn't come from another word, you might say. Uh, we might say today, it is what it is, this, this word. And I was also surprised to find that this word hosios is not used that often in the New Testament. It's only found eight times uh, in the New Testament, and five of those are quotations from the Old Testament. However, this word might be very similar to, uh, if not synonymous, some people say, with another Greek word, hagios, which is found a whopping 233 times in the New Testament. Both of these words, hosios and hagios, they're both um, translated most often as holy. In our text, holy is used in the English Standard Version, the King James, the New King James, the American Standard, and the NIV. Um, a few versions use the word devout, New American Standard, the New Revised, and the Amplified use the word devout. And there's a couple of others that use uh, words such as godly, pious, or pure. Now, as I said, 
I think most of us would hesitate to describe ourselves as holy. That seems to be a word that should be uh, reserved for God. It certainly is a word that describes God. Uh, in fact, it's used um, to describe God in Revelations 15 and verse 4. John there heard um, the angels or heard the, um, the voices that he was hearing there in, in that heavenly place. He heard them singing the song of Moses and the song of Lamb. And it says they were saying, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Notice, for you alone are holy. Again, that immediately makes me hesitate. Well, then how am I supposed to be holy? Both Peter and Paul use the word in the book of Acts, uh, quoting the Psalms, actually. It says there of Jesus, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Acts 2.27, also Acts 13.35. The word's also applied to Jesus in Hebrews 7.26, where it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And so what is it that this word means and how can we ever live up to it? Well, according to Strong's, this word hosios describes something that is right by intrinsic or divine character. They are offered this definition, undefiled by sin, free from wickedness, religiously observing, religiously observing every moral obligation, pure Holy, pious. Doesn't make me feel much better because, again, that sounds like a standard that's too high for, for anyone to reach. In fact, another definition that I found, and I'm not sure the source of this one, but it says that this Greek word pertains to being holy in the sense of superior moral qualities and possessing certain essentially divine qualities in contrast with what's human. In other words, it sounds like holy is not humanly possible. But I think the key is that it must be a standard that we are reaching for. We all, and elders in particular, must live our lives in a way that strives to mimic God and mimic Christ and their perfection and their holiness. In fact, we're commanded to do so. In 1 Peter 1 verses 15 and 16, Peter says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, obviously, if God commands us to be holy, then it's not impossible. Paul said that he and his companions had lived this way uh, before the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2 and 10, he said, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Paul didn't think it was presumptuous on his part to claim that he had lived in a holy manner. And by the way, I believe that's the adverb form of the same word, uh, hosios, that's in our text. Here's a couple more definitions, or at least interpretations, of the definition of this word that helped me to, to maybe better grasp how, how we as mere humans can, can live holy lives. Um, a man by the name of Kent said, "...conduct which is true to one's moral and religious obligations." And another commentator, Linsky, said, Conduct which observes the true and established ordinances of the Lord. Again, I think the expectation is that Christians should be striving for holiness like that of God and Christ. And of course, we do so by following their commands. And this is especially true of 
elders. Commentator Matthew Henry said about this qualification of an elder, he said that an elder must be one who reverences and worships God and is of a spiritual and heavenly conversation. Of course, that word conversation uh, in the old days meant way of life. So his way of life was spiritual and heavenly. John Gill once again wrote that an elder must be devout towards God, constant in all religious exercises, in the closet, that means privately, in his family and in the church, and living soberly, righteously, and godly in the world. Before we close, I think it's worth noting that that in addition to Titus 1 and verse 8, there are a few passages uh, where the qualities of upright and holy, these last two that we've noticed, are used together. Again, they're obviously there in Titus 1 and verse 8. But in Mark 6 and verse 20, we read that Herod feared John the Baptist, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. In Luke 1, after the birth of John the Baptist, we read a prophecy by his father Zacharias uh, concerning the Messiah, Jesus, that was to, was to be born soon, in fact. And he says there, Zacharias says in verses 74 and 75, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Now, Zacharias was talking about Jesus, Him, there, but he's talking about us serving Him with holiness or in holiness and righteousness. The words that Zacharias uses here are are very similar, uh, pretty much the same noun forms, really, of those two qualities that we've been studying. Brother Smith Bibbins wrote an article in the Christians Christians Expositor Journal uh, just this past September concerning these qualities of an elder. And uh, I love what he said here about this prophecy from Zacharias. He said, Zacharias is thanking God for the redemption to be brought by the Messiah, of whom his son John would be the forerunner. This deliverance results in a holy and righteous life, or it should. Jesus didn't come to this world and die so we could go on wallowing in our sin to give us a license to sin. No, He did not pour out His blood at Calvary so we could please ourselves. He gave His life so we could be reconciled to the Father and please Him. He came to rescue us from sin, and His under-shepherds or elders must live in that light before the world, modeling the reality of the redeemed life in Christ. That redeemed life that that Brother Smith pointed out there, that's emphasized in, in one final passage that we'll notice. In Ephesians 4, Paul is describing this new life that we must have once we learn of and once we become followers of Christ. And he says in verses 22 through 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. New life in Christ, the new life that we begin when we are baptized and when we become members of the church and the new life that we should continue to live is a life of righteousness and holiness. And those who lead Christ's church must be men who lead the church in these qualities as well. Well, in closing this morning, let me stress again that the qualities that we've noticed today are ones that that are expected of all Christians, not just elders. We all have the responsibility to be lovers of good, to live upright and holy lives. Certainly, elders are to be a model of what is expected of all Christians. They are to live an exemplary life that that illustrates the mature, full-grown character 
of Christ. And I hope that we can see and, and agree that the characteristics we've studied today are, are crucial to being the kind of leader that the Lord's church needs and deserves. Well, I hope the lesson has been beneficial to everyone this morning. We never want to end a uh, sermon or a service without offering the gospel invitation. If there's one here this morning who has not become a baptized believer of Christ, has never been added to his church, you've never begun that new life and, and had your sins forgiven, <clears throat> we encourage you to, to take that step today. The Bible teaches us that after having heard the gospel, that we must believe it and that we must repent of our past life, being willing to change, make a change and put that old life behind us and begin a new life, that we must confess our faith in Christ as the Son of God, that we must confess that we will follow Him as our Master, and that we must be baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're, not here, if you're here this morning you've not taken those steps, we encourage you to do so. Or if you're here and you've once taken those steps, but you've not remained faithful, perhaps you realize that you have not been a lover of good, that you not, have not lived a, a righteous or holy life, then make those things right today. And if we can assist you in any way, please come while we stand and while we sing.